Thank you, guys. I think I've made a huge mistake. Have you ever said those words? You made a decision, and maybe you didn't think too much about it. Maybe you thought it wasn't going to be that big a deal. Maybe you had really high hopes. You thought it was the right decision, but it turned out terribly wrong. That is a horrible feeling, isn't it? I think I made a huge mistake. I can remember just a few days after Melissa and I were married. We were driving a black Jeep Wrangler on Maui's beautiful, very narrow, very windy road to Hana. And I had driven the whole way there and most of the way back. And that's when, out of the blue, she asked, can I drive for a little while? And that was the moment that changed the course of that day and instituted the first official argument for us as a married couple. I hesitated. I cleared my throat and then said something like this. Well, you know, uh, the, the Jeep was kind of my special part of this trip. I made a huge mistake. (laughs) Oh, the regret. Oh, the instant conflict. Oh, the awkward silence for the rest of that very long drive back to the hotel. I hate that feeling. And, And sometimes when that happens, after you get over the initial shock, sometimes it takes me a moment to realize, what what did I just do? What just happened? And then I'm thinking, how can I hide? How can I escape? What can I say? How can I patch this thing up? How can I clean this mess up that I've made? Have you been there? I know I have. Sometimes it seems like it's almost daily. That's what happened so many years ago in a garden. The story is tragic. It was the mistake of mistakes. And the consequences of that decision Well, they're still unfolding even now. We see them all over the place. We heard just devastating news just the other day of something that happened down in San Diego. It is tragic what we see happening in our world. I think think we may have made a huge mistake. And yet, if you look closely In the aftermath of all of that, you find glimmers of light. You find rays of hope. You find flashes of glory. And this morning, I'd like to take just a few moments and explore how the consequences of the fall actually tell us some really important things about God. There is glory in the aftermath. The shadows prove the sunshine. The the ashes, they affirm the flame. If you haven't already, let's open our Bibles to the book of Genesis. We're going to be reading in chapter 3. And no, we're not going to be reading to verse 31. I haven't written those parts yet. We're going to read to verse 24, the end of the chapter. If you'd stand with me, Genesis 3, we're going to start in verse 7 and we'll read to verse 24. 
Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you were dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. The question for us today is what do the consequences of the fall, what do they tell us about God? They tell us that there is glory in the aftermath. Even in the midst of the horror and the shame and the pronouncement of the curse on the two people and their descendants, we see the glory of God shine forth. I want to show you what I, what I mean here. First off, what happens in Genesis 3, it tells us something very important about God. It tells us that God was right. 
God was right. Disobedience did, in fact, bring death. As Eve was speaking with the serpent and Adam stood there, Adam stood there quietly, just watching it all unfold, both were entertaining this idea that perhaps the words that God had said, perhaps they were incorrect. The serpent flat out said it. God's not telling you the truth. You will not surely die. We mentioned several weeks ago that there was, there was a minimizing, there was a twisting, there was a diminishing, a questioning of God's word and whether or not God's word would actually come to fruition. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. It makes no difference whether it's Sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. Joy in God is extinguished in us and we seek all our joy in the creature. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality and only desire for the creature is real. Satan does not fill us with hatred of God but with forgetfulness of God. And lust thus aroused envelops the mind and will of man in deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken away from us. The questions present themselves. Is, is what the flesh desires really sin in this case? Is it really not permitted to me, yes, expected of me now here in my particular situation to appease desire. It is here that everything within me rises up against the word of God. That's what's happening here. Desire, it just took flight and it rose up against what God had said. It can't be true. It must not be true. How can this be wrong if it feels so right? When everything inside me says, I was, I was made for this. This is who I am. This is where my joy is found, where fulfillment is found, where satisfaction is found. But they were wrong. And God was right. No, they didn't drop dead on the spot. Adam, in fact, would go on to live 930 years, we're told. Their hearts may have still been pumping, but make no mistake, they were very dead. Henri Blocher, the French evangelical theologian who he, he taught systematic theology at Wheaton, he wrote this, In the Bible... Death is the reverse of life. It's not the reverse of existence. To die does not mean to cease to be. But in biblical terms, it means cut off from the land of the living. It's a diminished existence, but nevertheless an existence. In other words, you don't need to be dead to be dead. The good life that they had been made to enjoy, that was lost. God was right. Disobedience did bring death. And I want to just talk for a moment about how it brought death. First of all, it brought death in the relationship between the man and the woman. The very first thing that happens after the fall 
is that man and woman, husband and wife, Adam and Eve, they can no longer trust one another. Notice verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. See, before the fall, they could have cared less who saw them naked. It didn't matter. They were made in God's image. He made them good. Why should anyone think bad of what they looked like, who they were? God had made their bodies. He was the one who decided what was good and what was bad. And up to this point, everyone had believed him. But now things were different. Now all of a sudden, Adam and Eve were judging for themselves what is good and what is bad. All of a sudden, they couldn't trust each other. I don't know what Eve's thinking over there. I don't know what Adam's thinking. Does, does, does he not like the way I look? Does he approve of the way I look? Adam's thinking, does she think I look weird? I, I don't know. And so they cover up. Trust was absolutely destroyed in that moment. Adam didn't trust Eve. Eve didn't trust Adam. And she didn't have to wait long to have her suspicions of him verified. She didn't have to wait at all. Chapter 2, Adam he praises God for, for making Eve. In verse 23, he says, This is at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. We just get this sense that he is just overwhelmed. This is absolutely perfect, God. You made her for me. She is everything that I could have ever wanted, everything that I ever needed. She completes me. You know, all those feelings that, that you think you know, the moment you first meet that special someone, you're just like, oh, this is just so amazing. Adam was thinking it, and it was true. But immediately after, they eat the fruit, and he's questioned by God. What does he say? Man said, the woman, the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. What a great start to marital bliss, huh? What a great start. And how long did we say that Adam was going to go on to live? 930 years of this? Oh, man. Some of you may have experienced pain, the distance that there can be between a husband and wife. Maybe you've experienced it personally. Maybe you experienced it in your parents. Or maybe you, you have a brother or sister who's gone through this sort of thing close friends. We, we all know, we've all tasted a little bit of what that's like. And you know how devastating that divide can be. I don't think it's wrong, it's, it's, it's an exaggeration at all to say it's, it's, it can be like a living death. I've known a few people who have been so touched so deeply by this kind of divide, by this kind of separation, this kind of pain. They've just decided, I, I, marriage, not for me. I don't want to do that because once I pledge myself to this person, she's either going to disappoint me or I'm going to disappoint her and it's just going to explode and it is going to be a mess. I don't want to have anything to do with it. And so they'd rather just decide, well, okay, well, we'll just, we'll just hang out together. We'll just live together. We'll just do our thing. And, uh, and then if it doesn't work out, well, no big deal. Uh, we can say goodbye and it's, and it's all good. Or some people just say, you know, I don't want to even do that. I'm just going to stay single my whole life. Lock myself completely off from that institution because it's just destined for failure. That's a tragedy. What God has 
designed men and women for in, in a special relationship that they were meant to enjoy that was supposed to complete them and just make life so good, we've messed it all up. Because of our disobedience to him, the unity, the peace, the joy, the satisfaction that we were meant to have, it was lost. We see that in the pronouncement of the curse. God says to Eve in verse 16, your desires shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So much for working together. So much for helping each other. So much for teamwork. Instead, God says that Eve is going to look at her husband and she's going to question him. She's going to have that strong desire well up inside of her. She'll doubt him. She'll think poorly of him. She'll wonder if his motives are actually in her favor. Everything inside of her is going to rise up, want to challenge him, fight him, strike out against him, and move on ahead without him. And what about Adam? Well, he's going to clench his fist. He's going to raise his voice. He's going to throw his weight around. He's going to abuse his physical strength. He's going to rule over his wife. Instead of protector, well, he's going to become a dictator. Instead of a giver, he's going to be a taker. Instead of a lover, he's going to be a user. Instead of a servant leader, he'll be like that, that dog that just kind of lounges around in the yard, but then barks and bites if you get clo- too close to his bone or you invite, invade his space. It's not good. God was right. Sin brought death. It brought death in the relationship of man and woman. It also brought, it brought death of the good life. This wasn't going to be the life that they were meant to live. This was going to be a life of pain, of hardship, of sorrow, of isolation, of agony. To the woman, he said, this is verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. God said to Adam, Verse 17, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorn, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. It's not going to be easy for you guys. It's not going to be easy for you, Adam. You don't get to just walk around, soak your feet in those cool streams. You're going to work. You're going to sweat You're going to do battle with those weeds. You are going to fight the ground your whole life. And then when your life comes to an end, well, you're just going to go right back to where you came from. You came from dust. You're going back to the dust from which you came. And not only that, you guys aren't staying in the garden anymore. I'm shutting it down. You won't be here anymore. I'm sending you packing. That meant not only pain and suffering, but it meant their, their lives, they were going to come to an end. They're going to come to an end. That's what we see happening in verse 22. They're cast out of the garden, so they'll no, be, no longer be able to eat from the tree of life and no longer able to live forever. God was right. Disobedience brought death. Most significantly, was the death that they would experience in their relationship with God. Before the fall, they lived continually in the presence of God. They enjoyed this relationship with Him that was just amazing. It's beautiful. It was what they were meant to, to have. It brought 
lasting joy and satisfaction. Verse 8 says, They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. You know, on any other day, that would have been just a beautiful, wonderful experience, a welcome sound. It would have been comforting, soothing, joy-inducing, even thrilling. We're in the presence of God. This is incredible. But now it's terrifying. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The fig leaves that they had strung together, apparently they weren't enough. They weren't enough to conceal their shame. And so they hid themselves, which actually was a completely ridiculous thing to do. How can you hide from a God that is everywhere, who sees everything and from whom nothing is hidden? You, you can't. You can't. The psalmist knew it. Psalm 139.7, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. You can't hide. Where, where should I go? The answer is nowhere. It can't be done. And yet the shame of Adam and Eve, it was so overpowering, so deeply felt, that they just couldn't help themselves. The presence of God. I hear the sound. We could hide. We could have got to run. We gotta, we've made a mess here. We've made a huge mistake to stand exposed in the presence of this holy God. We, we know we're going to be condemned. And to stand condemned is to be completely unable to be in right relationship with God. The good life was lost. Completely lost. God was right. Disobedience brought death. And you know, this death, we're not just talking about Adam and Eve here. This was a death that would be passed on. Descendant after descendant after descendant. Passed down to every single person that would come from him, them. There's no doubt in my mind that when the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, he had Genesis 2 and 3 in mind. In Romans 5.12, he wrote, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men, for all have sinned. Notice the word sinned, it's past tense. He, what he's trying to get across here is that every one of us is plagued with sin and death because in a way, every one of us was present there when that first sin took place. Kent Hughes wrote this, Adam and Eve, as our parents, were genetically, historically, and theologically every man and every woman. This is what we're talking about when maybe you've heard the term sinners by nature. You don't have to tell a lie. You don't have to think a bad thought to be a sinner because we are now sinners by nature because of what Adam and Eve did. Because they are our parents. They made a decision that had incredible ramifications. It impacted the rest of humanity for all time. We were born into it. Roman, uh, Psalm 51.5 says, Behold... I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother 
conceive me. It's, it's knitted into the fabric of our beings. We're sinners by nature because the very nature of the human race was altered when our parents made that fateful decision. Sin passed to all and with it death. God was right. He was right. You know, there have been times in my life when I have gloried in being right. I made a prediction and it came true and I said, ha, you see, I said that would happen. There have been other times in my life where I said something was happening, it happened, it brought grief. I knew that was going to happen. What a tragedy that happened. The consequences of the fall, they, I don't think they brought any joy to God. And yet, even so, they give him glory because they point to the reality that God is God, that his word is true, and what he says will happen does, in fact, happen. There's glory in the aftermath. The shadows prove the sunshine. The ashes, they affirm the flame. The consequences of the fall, they tell us God was right. They also tell us that God is holy. He's holy. And that word holy, it means, it means separate or set apart. So to say that God is holy is to say that he's separate from everything else. He's transcendent. He's above us. He's beyond us. He's altogether different from us. What Hannah prayed in 1 Samuel 2.2 was dead on. There is none holy like the Lord. For there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. God says in Isaiah 40:25, "To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him?" says the holy one. The answer is no. You can't compare God to anyone because no one is like him. He is altogether different. He is perfect. He is holy. Hosea 11:9, "I am God and not a man, the holy one in your midst." You know, God's not the the wrinkled, old, wannabe wizard hiding behind that curtain, pushing buttons, pulling levers, striking different instruments, trying to put on some type of show, trying to make us think that he is something bigger than he actually is. No, he's the real deal. He's holy in the most extreme sense of the word. He's holy through and through. And one of the realities of his holiness is that he will not, actually he cannot tolerate disobedience or wrongdoing of any kind. He wouldn't be holy if he did. In a courtroom, we refer to the judge as your honor. And there's a certain level of respect given to that judge. The judge is in a position of authority. It's distinct from everyone else in that room. He or she has been set apart to ensure the trial uh, takes place in an orderly manner and that justice is served. But were the judge to fail in these duties, to make unjust decisions, to overlook crimes that have been committed, well then he or she would be unfit for that role and wouldn't be deserving of the title, Your Honor. And it's the same way with God. He, he must rightly judge because He's holy. He is your, the ultimate Your Honor. 
the ultimate holy one, he must judge justly. He can't overlook sin. He can't just say, you know, I'll let that one pass. It's okay. That was kind of a small one. It's no big deal. No, nothing can go unpunished. He can't say in Genesis 2.17, you shall surely die and then not carry out the sentence when the sentence is deserved. Why? Because he's holy. Unlike a human judge, he's fundamentally set apart by his very nature. It's part of who he is. A human judge will always have the potential to go corrupt, to do the wrong thing, to make a bad judgment. Not God. He can't do that. That's what the consequences of the fall in our passage here, they show us. The ashes affirm the flame. The punishment that comes, the swift and sure justice for human rebellion, it gives testimony to the fact that God is God. He's holy. He's just. And while that may have not been a welcome thought for Adam and Eve, in fact, in the moment they heard the sound of him, they hid. They hid themselves because they knew he was holy. But that spoke powerfully to God's greatness, to God's majesty. His glory is put on display in the aftermath. Finally, the consequences of the fall tell us this. And this is the good news. They tell us God is love. God is love. Even in the midst of the curse that we see here in these pages, this looks pretty bleak. Pain and childbearing, some of you know that all too well. The toil that it takes to just earn a living, you know that very well. The pain that exists between husbands and wives, the destruction that is just, it's all over the place. We see that, we feel it, it's tangible, it's horrible, the curse is awful. And even in the midst of the pronouncement of that curse, there is incredible grace that is just spilling over. I'll just mention uh, just a few. Verse 22 says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden even to work the ground from which he was taken. Certainly, it was a terrible thing to be cast out of the garden. Make no mistake. Physical death the inescapable horror that was, that was coming for them that, that you and I know all, all too well as we've gathered in this room and we have said goodbye to loved ones. It's tragic. It's terrible. It's, it's heartbreaking. And the suffering that comes before it, it's, it's just awful. And yet at the same time, there's a, a whisper of God's goodness in this, in depriving them of this tree of life. We noticed earlier that Adam and Eve, they didn't die when they sinned. It wasn't immediate. At the same time, they really and truly did die. Ephesians 2.1 tells us, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. They thought that when they ate from the tree of the knowledge and the tree of good and evil, that they were going to be become completely free agents, able to decide for themselves what was good, what was bad, become completely autonomous. We don't need God to do that for us anymore. Now we're just going to strike out on our own, build our own life. What kind of world do you want? Think anything. They thought they were going to become like God. 
Gods in, in and of themselves. And yet that was just a pipe dream. It was an illusion. See, we may think that we are in control, but we're sadly mistaken. Because God alone is sovereign. He's really the only one that calls the shots. Instead of becoming more like God, they become this kind of pathetic, deceived wretches. Bent on choosing wrong, thinking themselves to be wise when they were really just being fools, fouling up everything, fighting each other, perpetuating pain and misery and suffering, trapped in this endless cycle of sin and sadness. It's the same reality that caused Paul to exclaim, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You know, if this life were to go on forever, this really would be a living hell. If God would have let them stay in the garden, keep eating from the tree of life, what a cruel God He would be to just go on and on and on in this life that is cursed by sin. It would have been awful. Kent Hughes writes, The exile was terrible, but it was also a grace The garden had been the holy of holies of God's presence. The the original divine space. Adam and Eve had lived gazing on God's face as he walked in the garden. They had breathed the air of God's presence. Now that was impossible. For them, their new state must have been like life without oxygen. They were perpetually short of breath. They could never get enough of God. I think there's a whisper of God's mercy in casting them out of the garden. There's more. God's love is also seen in the words to the serpent. To the serpent, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Throughout the centuries, Christians have looked at this verse as the very first gospel. The very first evidence of good news in the Bible. It's called the Proto-Evangelium. Church fathers like Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, they preached that the woman's offspring was actually referring to Jesus. The offspring is singular there. And they say, that's Jesus. He's one day going to crush Satan's head. Listen to what Jesus said in John 3.14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You see, back in Numbers 21, Israel had sinned. And God punishes Israel. What does he do? He sends venomous snakes. People were falling left and right, dead and dying. And then Moses cries out to God for help, and he's given some instructions. The Lord said to Moses, Make a a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. I think we've got to give glory for the details here. This is pretty incredible. 
It was the serpent that tempted Eve, right? So how fitting for serpents to be used as an instrument of punishment here. That's interesting. It's interesting also that the serpent that spoke to Adam and Eve, the words poisoned their hearts. Poisoned them. They were poisoned with venom. And that venom, it brought them death. And here in Numbers, the poison of these serpents, it's literally killing people. But the solution, the solution is very interesting. The solution wasn't to take an actual serpent and put it up on the pole so that everyone looks up at an actual serpent on a pole and that somehow is going to save them. No, no, no. God says it's it's a fiery serpent. It's, It's a bronze serpent. It's the likeness. It's the likeness of a serpent to be lifted up on the pole. Romans 8.3 Jesus, born in the likeness of human flesh, was lifted up that poisoned, dead, and dying people might be healed when they look up at Him. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. See, at the cross, the serpent would bruise his heel, but Jesus would bring the crushing blow that would destroy the curse and bring life to all who would look upon him. There's glory in the aftermath. The shadows prove the sunshine. The ashes, they affirm the flame. God is glorious. He's holy. He's love. Let me just mention uh, one last thing here. His love is seen in the clothes that he provides for this couple. Genesis 13, 3.13 The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. They had tried to cover themselves. They'd made an attempt to hide their shame, but it wasn't enough. Nothing has changed. As hard as we try, as creative and resourceful we may be, we're still unable to cover up the guilt of our sin. And we try to mask it. We put on the happy face. We prop ourselves up with monuments to our goodness. We surround ourselves with people who will testify on our behalf to our good character. Or we'll try to draw attention away from our deficiencies with all sorts of other distractions. But it's not enough. We know deep down inside who we are. Only a covering that God provided would be adequate for Adam and Eve. And only a covering that God would provide would be adequate for you and I. Scottish preacher Marcus Dodds pointed out, the clothing which God provided was in in itself different from what man had thought of. Adam took leaves from an inanimate, unfeeling tree. God deprived an animal of life that the shame of this creature might be relieved. 
He goes on. Sin could not be covered by a bunch of leaves snatched from a bush as he passed by, but only by pain and blood. Sin cannot be atoned for by any mechanical action, nor without expenditure of feeling. Suffering must ever follow wrongdoing. From the first sin to the last, the track of the sinner is marked with blood. It was made apparent that sin was a real and deep evil, and that by no easy and cheap process could the sinner be restored. He's right, you know. He's right. Just like that covering for Adam and Eve was costly, so was the covering that each of us need. Galatians 3.27 tells us that the clothing God provided through Jesus was just that. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. It's Christ himself that we're clothed with. It's only by the blood of Christ that you and I can be properly covered and our shame taken away. It's only in robes of righteousness that we can once again stand in the presence of a holy God and not fear for our lives, not run away hiding in fear. And that is what those who have looked upon the cross of Jesus, placed their trust in him. That's what we're going to be wearing when we're reunited with God in paradise. Revelation 19.8, it was granted her, is granted to the church, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteousness, righteous deeds of the saints. See, even in the midst of the curse, we see incredible evidences of God's love. I think I've made a huge mistake. That's a phrase that all of us should be saying as we face the consequences that result from our disobedience from God. It's a terrible feeling. It makes us want to run. It makes us want to hide. It makes us want to try to fix things in and of ourselves. But nothing is good enough. Thank God we have hope. Yes, he was right. Disobedience did bring death. But would we be able to trust him if he wasn't always right? Yes, he is holy. He can punish, and he must punish the wrongs that have been done. But would we be able to respect a God who did not bring, uh, did not bring justice or to the evil that has been done? Praise God. The answer is yes. Even when we turned our backs on Him, the fact remains: He's He's love. He's made a way for our relationship with him to be restored. And Jesus was lifted up so that we might look to him. His blood was spilled so that our sins might be washed away. His perfect life was lived so that we might be completely covered in spotless robes of his Righteousness. God looks at us. He sees us washed clean. He sees the good of the perfect life of Jesus reflecting off of us as we're clothed in His life. This is awesome. 
God has been so, so good. There's glory in the aftermath. The shadows, they prove the sunshine. The ashes that are there, they they affirm the, the flame. God is real. He's right. He's holy. And He loves you. Let's pray. Lord, we have made so very many huge mistakes. We've made a mess of us. Our lives, they they bear the stains, they bear the scars of choices that we have made. And God, we... When we stop to consider that you are actually holy, it makes us feel uneasy. It should make us be absolutely terrified. And yet, Lord, you love us. Your grace, it overflows. And you made a way for us to be healed. Poisoned with sin, Dead and dying, Lord, you made a way for us to be brought from death to life, and it is in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for making a way. Thank you for the goodness that even here in the third chapter of the first book in the Bible, we see hope. And Lord, I pray that if there are any in this room who are unsure of whether or not they have looked to you and trusted in you, for forgiveness of their sin, to be made right to escape the sin, the shame, the agony that they find themselves in. Lord, would they look to you even now? Confess that they need you. That what Jesus did on the cross was enough. That he paid for their sin. That he's all they need. He is the door to getting back to you. Would they trust Jesus and be brought back to right relationship with you? For the rest of us, Lord, increase our faith, give us joy, fill us with excitement and enthusiasm, for we are the forgiven, the ones who have been set free, the ones who have been given new life here and now and have the promise of life in paradise with you as it was intended from the very beginning. What incredible joy, what incredible hope, what incredible privilege it is to be called yours. We love you, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.